No past is too dark. No sin is too offensive. No problem is too difficult. No sorrow is too deep that Jesus can't come and speak to you in your despair. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And he tells you that this morning. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. As we open up the text today, I have a question for you. Have you ever, have you ever seen a rule or, or a sign? Maybe, uh, maybe it was this summer, poolside, the swimming pool, um, or, or maybe a law that was posted uh, on, on the side of the road, but some type of rule, some type of law that seemed really crazy, seemed silly, seemed like ridiculous, outlandish. Uh, maybe some of you grew up, and did any of you have a, a, a mom or dad? Well, I know you had a mom or dad. Uh, did, any, did anyone have a mom or dad that had a very strange household rule? Like you were growing up, or maybe your grandparents did. It's like you got to take your socks off in the house, or you got you to take your shoes off in this particular part of the house, or, or, uh, or your bedtime is this particular time uh, only on Thursdays. Did anyone have like a weird rule with your parents growing up? Did anyone have that? Am I the only one that had weird parents? Apparently. All right. So uh, these rules came from somewhere. These laws came from somewhere. And there's some laws that make sense and laws that don't. Uh, let me give you one for example. There's one in Florida called click it or ticket. You guys know this one? Here's the idea. The idea is if you're in a motor vehicle, you're supposed to click your uh, seatbelt. If you're new to Florida, this is your public service announcement for Florida, okay? Make sure you click it, right? If you don't put that, that seatbelt in, then the, the police is going to possibly pull you over, and you can actually get an infraction. You can get a ticket uh, for not having your seatbelt in, right? So click it or ticket. It's kind of catchy. It's kind of dumb, but uh, I think it's a great law. I think it's a good idea. If you're in a motor vehicle, you should have a, a seatbelt fastened. I was uh, at the scene of an accident in Tampa where a woman was thrown out of her vehicle for not having a, a, a safety belt on. So I think that that's a great law. But as great as that is, there are some crazy laws, crazy rules. And these are actual laws that have existed in the United States. I'm not making this up. I didn't just type this out. Uh, these actually existed at one point, and I think some of them are still on some of the books of these states, okay? Let me just show you these on the screen. These are real laws that are crazy. Did you know in Lexington, Kentucky, there is an ordinance forbidding anyone to carry an ice cream cone in his pocket? So just in case you're at 31 flavors, and you're like, you know, I'm going to save this for later. Um, can't do that. That's, you'll get arrested. In Pennsylvania, the penalty for cursing this has got to be different now. But at one point, it was a 40-cent fine. However, if God is mentioned in the curse, it went up to 67 cents. <laughs> be careful who you're cursing. Uh, it's illegal to mispronounce the name of the city of Juliet, Illinois. Joliet, Illinois. Okay, thankfully, we're not in Illinois right now. Otherwise, I'd be in trouble. Uh, in Waterloo, Nebraska, <laughs> barbers are forbidden to eat onions between 7 a.m., and 7 p.m. Actually, I rather like this one. Uh, I've had a barber who had bad breath, so I like that one. In the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, at one point it was against the law to eat peanuts in church. So any of y'all brought planters today and you're thought, I'm just gonna kick back some dry roast. No, that's illegal. In Zion, Illinois, it's illegal for anyone to give lighted cigars to 
dogs, cats, and other domesticated animals kept as pets. My obvious question is, what about a non-domesticated animal? Can I give him a cigar? Probably not. In New Jersey, a person can be arrested for slurping soup in a public restaurant. <laughs> so you're eating, and the guy next to you at the next booth, you're like, come on, man, citizen's arrest on this guy. In Oklahoma, you cannot take a bite of another person's hamburger. Now, <laughs> does that apply to your wife eating your hamburger? I told you there was a wife joke coming. Does that apply to our spouse? Hopefully, right? Um, how about this? According to an old Detroit law, this is definitely before automobiles, banana peels are not to be thrown in the streets for fear of injury to horses. I didn't know banana peels, I thought that was cartoons, but apparently that's a thing. Uh, in Corvallis, Oregon, young ladies are not allowed to drink coffee after 6 o'clock in the evening, okay? That's probably a good thing, right? We don't want those crazy Oregon young ladies running around with caffeine. Uh, in Muncie, Indiana, you cannot bring fishing tackle into a cemetery. Why on earth would you bring fishing tackle? Just, just think about that for a minute. Uh, the California <laughs> Penal Code prohibits the shooting of any animal from an automobile, except a whale. <laughs> Okay, so if you're in California, actually, you can't do anything. That's an old law. You can't do anything in California now. You can't even have straws in California, let alone shoot an animal, okay? Uh, th this one, though, is interesting. In Lehigh, Nebraska, it is against the law to sell donut holes, okay? Now, as a Christian, I've got to say I reject that law because if you sell anything that sounds like donut, that should be a good thing, all right? So all of these laws are ridiculous, but listen, they made sense to the lawmakers at the time that they were given. Just think about that. They weren't created in a vacuum for sermon content. These were actually laws that someone sat down and said, yeah, yeah, you know what, ice cream. We should not allow that to be taken home in the pocket. Someone thought that through and tried to solve or prevent a real problem of some kind. Now, as parents, we kind of get this concept. Any parents in here today? Let me see your hand. If you're a parent this morning, you have had children, okay? We kind of get this. We would love to give our kids this general command, okay? I want you home at a reasonable hour, right? We'd love to be able to tell our children that, right, older kids. But we, we both know, don't we, that reasonable hour to us is 10 or 11. Reasonable hour to our high schooler, right, is 4 a.m. That was reasonable. It's not 6 a.m., Dad, right? If we've got a little girl and we say, hey, I don't want you playing at Emma's house down the street, Right? We have to be very specific because our little girl would say, well, she'd go down and she'd play with Emma like, in her yard or she'd play with Emma's little sister, but I wasn't playing with Emma at her house. Right? We have to be very specific. And the more specific we get with our commands because we're sinners and we have a sinful nature, listen, the more specific we get, the more ridiculous those laws, those rules look like to others. When people see that, they go, that's a little strict. That's a little stringent. What is going on? And so the, the point, the purpose of a rule of a law is to try to solve or prevent some type of problem from happening. And that's what we would call the spirit of the law. Can you say spirit with me? The spirit of the law. Okay, there's letter of the law, and then there's the spirit behind the law. There's the shell, and then there's the meat within the shell. Okay, and so I'm sure there was originally a legitimate reason why you don't give caffeine to women in Corvallis, Oregon after 6 p.m., legitimate reason. But see, what happened is we only get stuck to just the outward 
uh, letter and, and with any rule, we just start focusing on the specifics, on the shell, and we don't understand why we're doing that, what the root is, what the meat is. And the text that we're going to study today illustrates how far some of the religious Jews, the Pharisees, would go to keep the letter of the law, the shell, without grasping the spirit behind it, the idea behind it, the reason behind it. And guess what? Lest we point the accusing finger at those Pharisees and say, yeah, I can't believe them. You and I this morning are just as capable. We're just as culpable as the Pharisees. And so what we're going to see today, as we just read, is essentially a man who simply needs mercy. He just needs mercy. He needs compassion. He needs healing. And to get healing, he needs someone else's help. But religion won't rescue him. Superstition won't save him. Only Jesus can step in and help him. But what we're going to see in this text today, it's not one of those cut and dry miracles where someone is healed and they thank Jesus and there's like a release of doves in the air and everyone goes home happy and healed. That's not what happens in our text today. This is a very sad ending. In fact, we could say that today is part one of a three-part trilogy. If, if you like trilogies, you know that the beginning movie or book sets the stage in the background. There's a little bit of conflict. Then the middle movie, the second movie, there's this big conflict, and the hero almost seems to lose. It's almost as if the arch enemy comes against right, the, the, the hero, the protagonist, and they're about to lose everything, uh, even their arm, and they realize their dad is Vader. Right? Uh, in that middle movie or that middle book, right, uh, everything seems bad, and it ends kind of on a bad note. And then the third uh, part of the movie or book, in the end of that trilogy, there's kind of the, the, uh, the resolution and the hero comes out on top and defeats their, uh, their biggest foe. And so that is essentially what we're going to be seeing in John chapter 5. Today we're going to get the backstory, the setting, the miracle that sets the stage. Next week, I want you to read ahead, uh, we'll see the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, they come against Jesus and begin to persecute him. And then um, Jesus begins to have this powerful dialogue with them. And then in the third study, in two weeks from today, we're going to see how Jesus utterly obliterates the religious leader's objections against him. So with that in mind, I want you to look on the screen and take this down as an outline for today. Here's what we're doing today. Today we're looking at verses 1 through 17. We just read them, but we're going to see these three things today. Verses 1 through 7, we're going to see a man carrying a bed. Uh, a, a bed carrying a man. Uh, sorry, a bed carrying a man. Then we're going to see a man carrying a bed, verses 8 and 9. And then we're going to see... Uh, hypocrites carrying legalism, verses 10 through 17. You and I can also be in that camp. So with that as our outline, uh, let's dive into verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was a feast of the Jews. Please circle that word, feast, or highlight it. Uh, the feast that they would go to annually would be one of three feasts. They would go to uh, Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, or for the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Now, which one is Jesus going to? We don't really know. A lot of scholars say this is the Passover. And if that is the case, we don't know. But if it is, then Jesus would have gone then to four Passover feasts during his public ministry of three years. The first one, second, third. And then on the fourth one, the last one, that is the one he's put to death at, at Passover. And so we don't really know for sure which feast, but we do know Jesus is now back south, not in Galilee anymore. He's down in Judea. He's in Jerusalem. And look at verse 2. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Go ahead and circle Bethesda, and we'll come back to that at the end, Bethesda. Okay? Uh, John tells us that in the city of Jerusalem, there's this particular gate. It's called the Sheep Gate, and there's this big pool. It's actually two pools, and I want you to see a modern-day picture of it. This is a modern-day uh, picture of that particular area. Um, the water wasn't super deep down at the bottom, but there were these five porches or porticos that had this kind of an awning, a covering. So when you would go there, it was very beautiful. It was shaded. There was this reddish tinted water. And on occasion, it was spring-fed and would bubble. And so a lot of people, Jews and Romans, believed that there was healing found in the spring, like today. People will go to a hot spring or a cold spring, believing that there's kind of medicinal uh, properties to the spring, and if I get in the water, it's going to make me feel better. To as the place of poured out water. It's a very popular place today. Uh, if you're in Jerusalem, you'd go to the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem, and you'd find it there near St. Anne's Basilica, St. Anne's um, Church. And so a lot of people would go there, um, but they're not the type of people you normally see at a hot spring resort. Okay, look at verse 3. Here's who's there. In this particular string, spring, it says, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people, uh, waiting for the moving of the water. Okay, so this is a place where it's not the rich and famous, it's the downtrodden and those who are having just horrible plight. They're all laying around the pool, right? Now, a lot of you have verse 4, and a lot of you do not have verse 4. If you're reading from the New, the New International Version uh, or the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, those two are great translations. You will not see verse 4. If you have the New King James, which is a good translation, you will see verse 4. So let me read verse 4, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, in the New King James, or if you've got it at the bottom in your subnotes, your footnotes, you'll see verse 4 says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. What is going on? Why is verse 4 left out of my Bible, right? So what's happening here? Okay, if I can have your attention. Uh, what's happening here is your footnote explains that that verse, verse 4, after the word paralyzed, basically is not in the original manuscripts. So here's what happened. Let me just give you the backstory of what happened. At one point, all these people are laying around this pool, and all of a sudden there's bubbles that are coming up. And someone who is sick jumps in the water, and they're possibly healed or cured of their illness. It may have been permanent. It may have been temporarily. And so this legend, this kind of folklore, this superstition got out that if you're the first one in the water, now you're going to be healed. And so all of these guys now it became kind of like legends. So everyone's on the edge, camping out, waiting to jump in. Here's the sad thing. That became kind of this superstitious idea. And a scribe, after John wrote this, went back in and said, let me add this. Let me add a little bit to what John had to say. And so he puts this into the scriptures, and we would do well to leave it out. Why? Because it's, it's folklore, it's legend, it shouldn't be in the scriptures. Thankfully, your Bibles tell you that. Your Bibles tell you it's not in the original, it shouldn't be. We can, let me just say this, we can rest assured in the original manuscripts. We can have faith in the Word of God. And when the Word of God has a discrepancy like this, it points it out, okay? It's not like someone said, let me add this later, Jesus is God. Let me just add that later. Okay, the scriptures we can bank on, we can trust. So um, what happened here? Was it a superstition? Was it a coincidence? Was the person even really sick to begin with? This superstition became uh, kind of like folklore and, and a lot of people's truth. 
And, and for some of us, that, that's still the case today. You guys know that some people believe in superstition. Uh, how many of you would open up an umbrella in a house and then suddenly kind of have that check as you did it? Like, I shouldn't be doing this for some reason. Or you see an open ladder and, and you go, you're going to walk around it and you start walking under it and you go, I don't know if I should do Some of you drop a mirror and what are you immediately thinking of? What's the number that comes to mind? Seven years of bad luck. Come on. Right? We believe in some of these superstitions. Here's a few I looked up. Um, someone believes that if there's a bird that goes into your house, then it's a sign of death. That's a superstition people believe. Another one, if you as the groom dropped your wedding band on your wedding day, apparently your, your marriage is doomed, apparently, so no one raised their hand on that one uh, if you dropped your wedding band. It's, it's just silliness. Um, we've all heard this, that if you hear a bell ringing, then an angel gets something, he gets his wings, right, okay. So these are silly um, superstitions, but today people still follow some of them. Today uh, in the news you could read about people making a cheese sandwich, and there's, there's, is it Jesus on the cheese sandwich, or Jim Caviezel, or David Hasselhoff, I don't know, but that cheese sandwich is worthy of worship. <laughs> Someone sees stained glass, and there's the apparition of the Virgin Mary, and so now I'm going to worship them. There's still modern-day superstitions, and so in the midst of this place, here at Bethesda, where there's broken, hurting, religiously superstitious people, Jesus wants to do a great miracle. Now look again at verse 3, look at this group. In these porches lay a great multitude. This is not a few. This is a huge crowd. And notice what it lists. It lists that there's blind people, uh, sick people, lame people, paralyzed people. Just think of the plight. And, and let's just entertain something for a minute. What if the superstition's true? So an angel stirs the water, and the first person in is actually healed. Let's just entertain that idea for a minute. Just think of what, if you're a blind guy, You've, you've got to listen for the water. So you've got a disadvantage because you're laying on the edge kind of like you can't see the water, but you're on the edge and you're listening. Is the water bubbling? Right, and then someone over there, Bob over there is being silly and he's splashing. So then you jump in the water and Bob's cracking up. Right, so there's that, that plight. Then there's the deaf guy. And so the deaf man uh, is hoping to watch the water and he's looking for the right amount of time, but then he gets distracted. And so he's at a disadvantage. Uh, if you're paralyzed... You're laying there, and you've got to rely on a friend to push you into the water before everyone else. But that friend better be close, right? Because you're not going to be on the top of the water. You're going to sink. So your friend's got to like, keep your head above water and be right there next to you. And then if you're sick, you're just laying there like, I don't know if I feel good enough to even bother today. I just don't feel good. And so there's a multitude of needy people here, and none of them are looking to the source of true healing None of them are looking to Jesus. They're looking to the pool. Here's what Spurgeon said about this. Spurgeon said a blindness had come over these people at the pool. There they were, and there was Christ who could heal them, but not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled or stirred. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. Today, people are still looking to the water. They're still looking to the pool of politics, to the rivers of relationships, to the wells of this world rather than Christ to free them from their plight. And so we come to verse five. Verse five says, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? 
Wow, if you're taking notes, 38 years. Lying helpless right next to what could be your complete means of healing. It could be. And yet all around you, the people that are supposed to help you are the very ones competing with you. You're supposed to help me get in the water. And instead, you're just here to get yourself in the water before me. And so I can't rely on any of the people around me. I've got to look out for me. And yet I am unable uh, to take care of my own future. Imagine coping with that issue for 38 years. We're talking 456 consecutive months of torment. That's 13,680 days of just stuck in this situation, being beat to the water by someone else. By this point, 38 years, I mean, paralysis had set in, and this man is just a fixture. Uh, he was the bedridden Bethesda that everybody knew. Yeah, there's, there's this guy, and he's always there. I mean, it's bad calling in uh, to work sick one day, sick one week. Imagine 38 years you're laying there. Everett Harrison said that this man lived, quote, in a prison without bars. How many of us today, we live in a prison without bars? And so Jesus comes to him, and notice what Jesus says. He says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Why does Jesus ask him, do you even want this? Doesn't that sound obvious? Uh, if I were Jesus, I'd say, okay, uh, you know, are you excited? That would be, probably be my question. Like, it's, it's time. It's your day. Are you ready? But he says, do you want this? Do you want to be made well? See, I think something's deeper at work here. I think the man doesn't mind his condition. I think he's kind of gotten used to this pattern in his life. You wake up in the morning, and your family carries you down to the, the sheep gate. And right inside the sheep gate, you set me down next to the one pool. And, and I'm just going to lay here with my excuses day after week after month after year after decade. And now it's become his entire life. And before we go pointing the accusing finger, I wonder if you and I have the same tendency. I wonder if you and I come dangerously close to a place in our life where we, we kind of get used to our condition. We get used to the sin that used to scare us, that used to frighten us, and now we're used to it. Now we no longer mind it. We grow comfortable with it. We begin calling it by a different name. Some of us say, well, it's not sin. It's, it's just a bad habit. It's not a... It's not a sin, it's a disease. I have a disorder. I have this issue. Or I do this because it helps me calm down. And the Lord understands. I'm just used to it now. It's not as bad as you think it is. We come up with these different excuses. And Jesus asks you and I, do you want to be made well? And do you really want to stop sinning? Well, what does the man say? Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him. I love how John points out he's still in this condition. He's still sick. The sick man said, answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. See, the man didn't answer Jesus' question, did he? He doesn't answer it. It was a yes or no question. Do you want to be made well? My answer would be yes. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here. I want to be made well. But, but what does he do? He excuses his condition. And he says, uh, you know, it's everyone else's fault. Everyone around me is supposed to help me, and they're competing with me, Jesus. I, I'm laying here in this state, and it's everyone else's fault that I'm in this state. And, and yes, I, I would love to be made well, but the only way, the only means of doing that is for someone to get me in this pool, and no one's willing to do that. In other words, it's everyone else's fault. This man's a victim. Everyone else is to blame. Jesus this morning says to us, 
Do you want to be made well? And when we ask some people that, uh, you try to help them, but they just make excuses. And I pray that we aren't like that. When God comes to do a work in our life, I pray that we don't say, Lord, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm in this condition because of my parents. I'm in this condition because of my ex-wife. I'm in this condition because of my kids or my boss or that one mean guy. I'm stuck in this, in this place, and it's everyone else's fault. I mean, if I look at this story correctly, I would imagine over the course of 38 years, someone has the compassion to say, let's get Larry over here in the water. I mean, this guy's been laying here for so long. Let's help the guy out. But maybe the man was too prideful. Maybe he's too comfortable that he didn't bother asking. John Calvin said this, the sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more that he conceives in his mind. And we can do that as well. Uh, I only know the, the pool. That's the only thing. He didn't know Jesus was capable and right in front of him. Now, that's the bed that carries the man. Now let's look at a man carrying a bed. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him three things. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And in the New King James, verse 9, I have the word immediately. I don't know if you have that. You might want to circle that. Immediately, the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. I love this. Don't you love this? Jesus doesn't give in to the excuses. He doesn't go, yeah, you're right. What's up with you guys? He doesn't look at the people around the man and say, you guys are awful. What a, what a group. I tell you what. You know, you may be blind, but you could at least kind of find the pool and help Larry in the water. You know, you deaf guys, you know where the water is. And you know his condition. He, you may not have talked to him, but you know how to help him out. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus gives him three commands. And I'll put them on the screen. I want you to jot these down. Jesus says this, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Rise, first rise. Okay? That implies that we need to have our feet firmly in place. This man had to have his feet in place. He had to get up. He had to rise up, listen, out of his excuses, out of his sin, out of blaming others, he had to stand to his feet. Uh, this command that Jesus gives him is completely impossible apart from God's intervention, miraculously. Jesus commanding a paralyzed lame man to stand up would have been absolutely uh, impossible for him to do unless God had done something prior. Unless Jesus had, by the Spirit of God, rebuilt the man's muscles, which would have atrophied. There's this miraculous healing of 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 uh, muscles and bone marrow and tissue and all of that kind of constructed where he suddenly is able to obey and rise. So Jesus isn't being cruel when he says, yeah, rise. Uh, He is giving him that possibility by the power of God, rise. Secondly, take up your bed. In other words, don't leave it there. Uh, You're not gonna lay back down next to the pool. Uh, No one's gonna clean up your mess. Uh, There's consequences that you need to deal with because of your sin, and so you need to pick up your bed and need to carry it home. Uh, There's some burdens we may need to carry if we sin and we disobey. Uh, We don't leave our bed for someone else. Someone else pick up this mess. Now, if you've sinned and there's consequences, you sometimes got to pick up the mat. you got to deal with it. Uh, But he says, take up your bed, pick it up. And thirdly, he says, walk, walk. Walk away. Walk away from the pool, the things that are keeping you in bondage. Imagine if the man stood up, picked up his bed, and then just stood there. Uh, Eventually, he would lay back down. Uh, But Jesus said, you you need to walk. You need to put one step in front of the other and stay in step. It doesn't matter this morning what condition you find yourself in. 
I'm speaking to everyone here this morning. It doesn't matter what condition you find yourself in this morning. Uh, Jesus is able to heal you. Listen to me very careful. No past is too dark. No sin is too offensive. No problem is too difficult. No sorrow is too deep that Jesus can't come and speak to you in your despair. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And he tells you that this morning. Now, the most important phrase in this whole passage is the second part of verse 9. Look at verse 9, the second half. This is the most important part. And that day was the, yell it out, the Sabbath. Someone said Friday. No, it was the Sabbath. The problem was not that Jesus healed a man. It's not how he healed him. It's not what he healed him from. It's not why he healed him. It's not where he healed him. It's when he healed him. He healed him on the Sabbath. And so carrying his bed home, rolls up his mat, puts it under the arm, starts walking home, he stops in the temple. By doing that, this man was violating not the law, but the religious leader's interpretation of the law. They added some stuff to the law. So let's interpret what that means. And their law became very strict, very specific, and very, what we could say, it was the shell, it was the letter, without understanding the spirit. So let's look at the third and final section of our text. This is hypocrites that carry legalism. Look at verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Okay? If you're taking note with me, the Jews had a problem with anyone breaking the Sabbath. But was he breaking the Sabbath? Was he? Uh, here's the law in question. We'll put it on the screen. Jeremiah 17, 21. Just to clarify it. God says, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. And here it is. Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. So, show of hands. This is not a trick question. The answer is not Jesus, but here, this is just a, a straightforward question. I just want to get a straw poll. Is a bed, a mat, is that a burden? Is that considered a burden on the Sabbath? Raise your hand if you say yes. Someone's like, I don't know, maybe. Okay, yeah, might, might be. We don't really know. Is it, a, is it heavy? Is it a weight? Yeah, it might be a burden. Um, here's another question. If you have a son and you're digging a pit, and then on the Sabbath day your little boy falls into that 10-foot pit, and you go, sorry, son, you're, you're a burden. You weigh a certain amount. You weigh 80 pounds. I can't lift you up. You're going to die uh, in that pit. No, you would go in and you would pull them out. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is, whether that kid weighs something, the spirit behind the idea versus the letter. Okay? And so what happened is um, they didn't know how to interpret this passage. What do we do with this? So the Jews came up with what was known as the Mishnah, commentary on the law of Moses. Remember, we talked about this, 23 chapters alone devoted to the Sabbath. What do we do with the Sabbath? 23 chapters. What do we do with the Sabbath? And so this particular law, they try to interpret what is a burden. What is a burden? So here's, here's some other examples. You couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath, okay? Why couldn't you take a bath? Listen, this is not a joke. If you splashed water out of the pool and it landed on the floor, that's work because you could be washing the floor, <laughs> So you can't get in the bathtub on the Sabbath. Not only that, uh, you couldn't move a chair in your yard. So you, some of you guys have patio furniture out in the yard. If you move that and it dug a rivet, a divot, what is it called? A little, a little cut in the yard, then that's considered plowing. <laughs> so you can't move a chair because you could plow and that's work. The rabbis of Jesus' day argued if you carry a needle in your robe, that's a burden. 
Some people, this is true, I'm not making this up. Some people said, do I wear my artificial teeth or my wooden leg on the Sabbath because that is considered abilitating disease for 38 years. And now you're stressed out that he's carrying a little lightweight bed and he's healed. You've missed the E on the eye chart. You've lost the plot. You've forgotten the entire reason. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. See, in their tradition, they far surpassed God's word and even we're not even excited about God doing a, a miraculous thing in the life of someone with great need. They had the husk without the corn. They had the shell without the meat. And so look at verse 11. They're not even excited about this. Wow, I've seen you there for years and years. For, I mean, even one of our younger religious leaders was born after the fact. I mean, you've been there for, for an entire generation. I'm so thankful that God has healed you. No, no, what did they do? Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice the man is blaming again, shifting blame. Someone else is at fault. And notice where their focus is. Who is it? We want to know who would make you do that. But verse 13, the one who was healed did not know who it was. Why? For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. I want to make the point here that uh, Jesus withdrew right after uh, the man was healed. Uh, Jesus didn't start a healing ministry at the pool of Bethesda. He healed one man very specifically to glorify uh, his name. Uh, he wasn't healing everyone. Okay, So Jesus then goes back to find the man. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Huh, what's happening here? Well, here Jesus seems to explain that this man's disability did come as a result of his sin. Okay? Uh, and just a few short chapters later in John chapter 9, we'll put it on the screen, story happens. Jesus was walking one day. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then Jesus said this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened, here it is, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Isn't that cool? There in John chapter 9, Jesus explains no one sinned, it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents, for this blindness to be afflicted on him. Okay? His blindness was given to him that he would ultimately reveal God's glory in his life. A lot of people, listen to me, they believe and they'll teach you this, and this is false, that if you're poor or that you have problems, or if you get sick, it's because there's a sin in your life or in your parents' life. Okay, that is bogus. Okay, that is not the, the only causation of problems. Okay, Jesus explains in John 9, no, that's not always the case. Okay, often we go through trials and hardships and setbacks and even disabilities. Why? To bring about a greater glory for the Lord in our life and through our life. Fanny Crosby said, I'm glad I was born blind because the first eyes that I'll see will be to look on the Lord Jesus. When my eyes finally see someone, the first face I'll see is the Lord Jesus. She was glad for her infirmity and her disability because it brought glory to God and God used her greatly, okay? So it's not always a result of sin, but for this man, it is the case, okay? This man had done something uh, terribly wicked and whatever sin he had committed had caused this disability. We don't know what it is. Uh, I just wanna make this point here. It's really important to make this point. Please jot this down. All sin will have a lasting, damaging consequence. All sin. And I want you to know that. Lest we skate around and minimize 
the impact of sin. The scripture tells us that sin leads to death. Please don't amen that, but sin leads to death. Listen to this eerie description in James chapter one. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth. It's a picture of childbirth. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It may start as desire, but then it, it, it gives birth to sin, and when it fully runs its course, all sin leads to death, a separation spiritually from God. God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a spiritual death, a separation from God. All sin. Don't kid yourself, young person, old person. Sin leads to death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have the sin nature, and that will ultimately lead to death. And so Jesus tells the man, you need to go and sin no more. And he would have been wise to listen, but notice what he does next. It doesn't end in a happy story. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, it says, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He's blaming it again. Oh yeah, I've got, I'm gonna blame it on Jesus now. Why would he do that? Why would this man go and, and give away Jesus as the source? Well, uh, John MacArthur has a, a, a great explanation. I love this. He says, in the face of the compassion of Christ, in the face of an amazing miracle, in the face of healing, this man declared his loyalty to the Jews who hated Jesus and wanted him dead. This has to be the most startling act of ingratitude and unbelief in all the healings that Jesus did. He has no intention of worshiping the Lord Jesus. He has no intention of following Jesus. He knows the Jews are hostile. They must have revealed and declared to him how they felt about the man who did this. And in order to put himself back in good graces for having violated the Sabbath, there's sort of a penitence here, and he's aiding his desire to be in good graces with the religious leadership by turning in Jesus to ingratiate himself with the religious establishment. And then he says, this is the power of false religion. I'm going to, I don't want to get in trouble for breaking the letter, so I'm going to do something to make up for it. That's the essence of false religion. You broke the letter, now you've got to do something to make it right. You've got to balance your spiritual spreadsheet. Okay, but what happens because of that is now there's a shift in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 5 at verse 16, there's a huge shift. Look at verse 16. For this reason, the Jews, you could say, began to persecute Jesus and sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working we now have a turning point in the Gospel of John in the ministry of Jesus. And so from here on out, the Jews are out to take Jesus down, and they will eventually succeed. Jesus responds in verse 17 with this, my father's been working, and I'm working. In other words, the Godhead's not taking a Sabbath. The Sabbath day was not created, uh, like man wasn't created for the Sabbath, it was created for man. God wasn't resting on the Sabbath because he was tired. Oh, I worked these six days of creation. I'm exhausted. I had to make the stars and the moon and the sun and jellyfish, and I'm just exhausted. I need, a, I need a day off from work. No, he's setting a stage. He's showing us a template for our work week and giving us an example that we should follow. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Uh, Clark says this, though he rested from creating, 
he never ceased from preserving and governing that which he had formed. In this respect, he can keep no Sabbaths, for nothing can continue to exist or answer the end proposed by the divine wisdom and goodness without the continual energy of God. God doesn't take a day off. Uh, the uh, book of Colossians says, in him all things hold together. And he's holding all of creation, all cellular life together. He's at work, and he's at work glorifying his name in and through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day in and day out, their speech is continually heard. And so we're going to see this, this conversation continue next week as Jesus speaks about his relationship with his Father. And so if you read ahead, you'll see how he says this in verse 17. That infuriates the Jews because that's a statement of divinity. My Father and I are still at work. They're not happy about that. But before we close this morning and take communion, I believe that, I just want to address something. I believe the Pool of Bethesda is an apt picture of the world that you and I live in. The world today says, hey, you made your bed, now lie in it. But Jesus says, you made your bed, but I say get out of it. See, you and I, we are the lame man. In our sinful condition, there's nothing we can do to remedy our plight. We, like this man, we lay helpless, and we conjure up in our helplessness feelings of blame, resentment, or maybe religious folklore, myth, to try and offer us some hope of salvation. But listen, no man-made religious ideologies can actually heal us. No matter what we create in our minds, we're still laying limp and broken. And Jesus comes to us this morning and says, do you really want to be made well? Do you really want this? Do you want to be cured, healed of your addictions? Do you really want to be free of marijuana, free of drinking, free of adultery, free of stealing, lying, gossip, anger, embezzlement, covetousness, pornography? Do you really want to be made well? And Jesus asks you that this morning. When he asks you that, it's not about your ability to be made well, but about your desire. You don't have the ability to make yourself well. You need someone else to come and to make you well. And the question is not if you're willing, because it's probably that you're not willing. But Jesus is willing. Do you want to be made well? Do you desire to be saved, to be set free, to be healed? You see, the, the name Bethesda, I told you to circle that. The name Bethesda means this. It means the house of mercy. You can also translate it the house of grace. Jesus goes out of his way not to heal all the people alongside this pool, but he sovereignly knows this man and his awful condition, and he chooses to lavish his grace upon this man and to make him whole. And in our lives, Jesus, he doesn't come to a house of mandates. He comes to a house of mercy. He doesn't carry religion with him. He carries the remedy. Jesus doesn't come and shower us with commands. He showers us with uh, his compassion. You thought God was all about guidelines when it's all about grace. You see, this morning, Jesus came not just to this man, but he came up the hill of Calvary and he didn't carry a mat, he didn't carry a bed. Jesus carried a Roman cross. And the culmination of the father's work was to crush his son at Calvary. My father's at work and it's to achieve this end, to put an end to sin. And though this man is laying here, we could call him an impotent man, he's unable to rise up, unable to be healed of his sickness, and Jesus comes and heals him. And after that, he's warned by Jesus, stop sinning or something worse 
will happen to you. What's worse than laying physically lame your entire life? What's worse than that is being tormented spiritually for all of eternity in the lake of fire. And I want to warn you this morning that religion, that keeping the letter of the law, and I would clarify, self-righteous legalistic hypocrisy will not save you. You could actually keep the Sabbath perfectly and still go to hell. God doesn't this morning grade us on a curve and say, let me weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. The idea behind that is as silly as, as this concept. Imagine being pulled over and a policeman says to you, you know, you're going 120 in the school zone and when you took that corner, you struck a child and I want you to know that child has been killed because of your reckless driving. And you say, you know, officer, I'm really sorry about that child being struck, but I don't know if you know this. I, I, I support the police athletically. I've got the bumper sticker, officer. I don't know if you know this, but I have a compassionate international child that I support every month. And so surely that has to outdo the awful deed that I committed today. That's silliness. That's absolutely insanity. And yet many of us think by doing something good, I'm going to earn God's grace. By keeping God's commands, I'll be made right with them. And it's a matter of performance preference. Keep a command and then get the grace. You're working for your salvation. Ironically, these men are upset about working on a day of rest, but they're working feverishly, religiously to earn their salvation when the Sabbath rest was available for them through Christ. Religion keeps you working, church, when the work has been finished. And so I want to invite the band forward, and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. If you'd close your Bibles this morning and get settled. Jesus comes and he says, Rise, take up your mat and walk. No more excuses. No more fingers to point. No one else to blame. Today, listen, you must acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, your need for him. You must surrender your will to Christ before something worse may happen to you. What a wonderful Savior who's come to pursue broken men and set them free. I was that broken man. I may not have had a disability, but in my sin, in my spiritual state, I lay next to the world thinking the world has the answer. And then Jesus came so gracefully, so sovereignly, and he reached out and he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And my life has never been the same. Many of us here this morning, Jesus has impacted our lives. He's healed us. I want to close with this idea. J. Vernon McGee tells a story of visiting a children's hospital. And at this hospital, a little boy got up and recited John chapter 5. And this little six-year-old boy knew the entire chapter perfectly from memory, except one word. As he was reciting this, he was supposed to say, there lay a great multitude of impotent folk in the King James, impotent folk. But when he read it, or when he memorized it and recited it, he said, there lay a great multitude of important folk. And J. Vernon McGee said all the parents kind of snickered because the boy said it wrong. But then the Lord kind of, by his spirit, kind of challenged him. And he thought, huh, actually, maybe that boy was right. They may have been impotent, but they, they were important. One of them was important enough that it caused the Lord Jesus to come and to heal him. They're important to Jesus. This morning, you may be an invalid spiritually, but you're important to Jesus. And so this morning, we place no confidence in our flesh. And so my pastor's challenge for us this morning is simply this. When you're tempted this week to 
work for God's approval. I gotta do another quiet time, Lord, because I, I did something wrong. I gotta measure up. I gotta do these things, the letter of the Lord. I want you to do these four things. I want you to, first of all, rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest. Secondly, receive the free gift of Christ. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And that may upset your pride, but you just need to receive it today. Thirdly, respond to the favorable grace of Christ. Don't go blaming others. Worship. Lord, thank you for what you've given me in Christ. And finally, rise up. Stop making excuses. Rise up to the freeing power of Christ. Amen? Father, we pray that you would work in our lives in such a way as you've been working, as Jesus admits, the Father's been at work from the very beginning. Work in our lives in a supernatural way. Lord, as we worship now, remind us of the wonderful cross that you bore, you carried up that hill. We thank you, Lord, that you took our sin and in exchange you gave us, you granted us, you imputed to us your perfect righteousness. It's undeserved, but we receive it by faith today. We thank you for it. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We love you. We commit this time to you as we worship, as we receive these communion elements. We love you and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.